The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at why and how imposters posing as Ukrainian politicians have managed to prank call British MPs and discuss how the geopolitical tensions have played out in sporting arenas across the globe. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 23, and today I'm joined by Dom Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Danielle Sheridan, our defence and political correspondent. Let's start with you, Dom. Can you tell us more about the airstrikes moving west in the last 24 hours? Yeah, hi Sophie. Hi everybody. So overnight there were more airstrikes to the west of the country. We um, an area largely untouched so far in the war. It's taken a few a few hits, but it, the, the tempo of strikes in and around uh, Lviv and the west part of Ukraine uh, seems to be increasing. There were some strikes last night to the southwest of the city of Lviv at the um, civilian uh, airfield and also uh, destroyed an airplane manufacturing facility. Whether or not that was the actual target or or if it was just sort of random shelling as we've seen elsewhere in the country, we we don't know. But uh, it it does look like the tempo of of attacks towards the west of the country is increasing. Of course, that's where the supply routes are from the the western supplies. It was only yesterday that that um, uh, the US announced an $800 million package um, of extra arms to Ukraine and uh, Britain said that we were going to be sending Sky Sabre to Poland, uh, uh, a, a medium-range air defence system, and Star Streak missiles, uh, short-range air defence, man-portable air defence, uh, into Ukraine. Um, elsewhere, Mariupol still under siege um, and horrific scenes from there. People, a small number of civilians are able to get out, but but it's, uh, it is it is. It's desperate there. The World Food Programme have said um, that their supply chains across the country are falling apart. That's their, that's their description. And uh, cite Mariupol as, a, as an area of, of particular concern. It's just that the whole civil infrastructure is collapsing, particularly in Mariupol. Absolutely desperate for the uh, for, for people there. Um, there's a couple of other points just worth uh, worth noting. Bulgaria expelled 10 Russian diplomats yesterday for, uh, for, quote, activities incompatible with their diplomatic status, which I think we can sort of read as, as spying. So this, this ties in with what we've said before about the, the, there'll be a great effort from Russia to try and find where these supply lines are coming from, from other uh, NATO countries, but other, other countries in, who, who may not be in NATO, supplying weapons and uh, aid and humanitarian aid and what have you into, into Ukraine. And of course, the problem is that I mean, these things aren't going to be marked. How, how once they get into Ukraine and they are targetable for, for striking, then what's the difference between a van carrying weapons and a van carrying humanitarian aid? It's going to be very difficult to uh, to tell that. So, so the more there's this activity um, t- towards the west, the 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 more the greater likelihood there is of of more civilian uh, casualties in that in that area. Thanks, Tom. Um, that was obviously a lot of um, information, and it seems like there is a lot of kind of diplomatic and tactical updates all kind of happening at the same time this morning. I know we're speaking at the moment that talks are supposed to commence between Biden and Xi Jinping this morning. What do you think the role of China could be from here on in and actually what the outcome of these talks could be? 
So China's really interesting. We've said for days, uh, weeks now, um, that China has a pivotal part to play here. And if China seeks to step up for a, a global leadership role, which which the country should do, I mean, a P5 member of the UN, nuclear power, a, a great world power, um, then um, China should should seek to hold uh, such a position. But obviously, with great power comes great responsibility, as says the old phrase. So it's very interesting that Biden, we're told, is going to be uh, impressing upon the Chinese leader not to uh, get involved and not to support Russia with, with economic aid or military aid. Of course, that is, I mean, I, I hope China don't do that, but they're enti- entirely able to. It's, it's perfectly legitimate for them to choose to do that, should they so wish. We have chosen to, to do the same for, for Ukraine. Um, so there's nothing intrinsically uh, wrong for China to choose to do that. It would, of course, nail their colours to the mast and say which side of this argument they are falling down on. So that would be very interesting to see the signs that come out of that later. But two other signs that, that China might be starting to try and put a bit more distance between themselves and Russia. Chinese state media yesterday put out uh, video footage of the attack a few days ago in Chernihiv where 10 civilians were killed. Initial reports thought that, that were said that they were shot by Russians. I think now that's been largely disputed and we think it was a, an artillery strike but 10 civilians were killed in a bread queue in Chernihiv. China's state media had not been putting out images of, of those of, of civilian casualties and not really covering much of the war from, from the Ukraine or the civilian side before. So the fact that they do this and they don't have a huge amount of autonomy, so the fact that they've been able to do this, it, it just suggests that China are go- growing increasingly uh, unhappy with the course of the war and the number of civilian casualties. And the second thing is that, that yesterday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov flew from Moscow or was flying from Moscow to Beijing for talks, we think, to, to discuss economic and uh, military aid. And his flight turned around mid-flight. So so why was that? Was this a diplomatic snub from China saying, actually, you're not welcome? Of course, they wouldn't say that. They'd say, diary clash, President Xi or the foreign minister is not, not available or for whatever reason. Or was there something at home? There's all these talk of um, this blame game going around the, the Russian security apparatus at the moment, um, uh, talk of sort of moles and coups and all the rest of it. So, so was Lavrov called home? Uh, we don't know. But I mean, it is extremely unusual to have a foreign minister in the air, literally in the air and have the plane turn around and go back home. So there are just some some tentative signs that China is just putting a little bit of distance between the position Beijing has and uh, and its uh, sort of uh, tacit support up to now for Russia's position. Thanks, Dom. And just going quickly back to the first update you gave us today about the attacks in Lviv. Now, obviously, we're coming much closer to the NATO border in with the city of Lviv. It's obviously on the Polish side of Ukraine. Do you think this is a new kind of offensive for Russia or are we was it a one off attack on the airbase or or could this actually change the kind of direction and scale of Russia's invasion? I don't know if it'll change the direction because they simply haven't got the ground force to be able to back anything up. They can destroy from the air, as we've seen elsewhere, but that in and of itself doesn't really achieve much. You're not taking and holding ground. You're not in a in a position of great political advantage there unless you lay waste to, to huge um, swathes of the countryside, which we are seeing in the east and, and the south. So striking to the west like this is not a significant development in the in the war. It almost smacks of desperation that, that Russia are having to use these strikes. There's reports that they are 
very low, if not out of precision guided munitions at the moment. The fact it's so close to NATO's borders is a concern. That is why Britain is sending its Skysaber radars to Poland. Uh, and I was told yesterday when I interviewed uh, James Heapy, the Minister for the Armed Forces, he said that, that actually Skysaber's perfect because if you put a, a system like the US Patriot system there that's that's very long range, that will be able to stare into mainland Russia and could be seen as a threat. Rightly so. I mean, these are military weapons. Of course, they're, of course they're a threat. Um, but you know, having a shorter range, I mean, uh, Skysaber is, is, is medium range air defence system, that that signals that it is very much more defensive rather than, than offensive. So th- that was NATO's response, Britain's response to this um, increased focus on the West from, from Russia, just to say, don't to be very, very careful about throwing heavy metal through the sky. There's a border there. And the, the more you do it, the more chance there is of uh, miscalculation um, and escalation by, by, by accident. So not a huge direction for Russia. It doesn't really mean anything other than they, that's all they can do. But it is, uh, it is nonetheless worrying. Thanks, Dom. And um, before we kind of move on from this first update section, I do want to say that you can listen back to Dom's interview with the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy, on yesterday's Ukraine, the latest podcast, which you can find on all your podcast apps. Um, I wanted to bring in um, Danny here, our political and defence correspondent. Now, I know that you've been looking into the story that emerged yesterday and that's on the front pages of our paper this morning, that Russians have targeted Priti Patel and Ben Wallace with fake video calls. I wonder if you could tell me more about the story. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's it's concerning that such a a sophisticated um, ploy could have taken place uh, uh, and and targeted two cabinet ministers. Um, So they were separate occasions, but um, starting with Ben Wallace, um, he was sent an invitation from another governmental department um, inviting him to have a chat with um, someone that claimed to be the Ukrainian prime minister. Um, And Ben Wallace was engaged in a conversation with this person over Teams video link for nearly 10 minutes before becoming spooked by some of the questions he was asking and terminating the phone call. It does raise questions as to how such a situation occurred. How did this email rise the ranks all the way to to top government. There is an inquiry that's been launched. Ben Wallace is said to be very unhappy with the fact that this was able to to happen in the first place. As part of this investigation, no doubt there'll be really, government will really be looking at um, the security procedures that has in place regarding um, organising such conversations. I mean, it sounds like nothing serious, no big state secrets are given away. Um, I spoke to the Defence Secretary about it last night for our story and he said he played it pretty straight throughout the conversation but that is the worry that a person could be enticed into giving away um, very sensitive information on the flip side what it also shows which is something that Ben Wallace said himself is that Russia is becoming more desperate you know this isn't going this war isn't going in the way it had planned. It expected the Ukrainians to capitulate and they haven't yet and ho- and hopefully won't. And therefore they're having to deploy other 
arsenal such as misinformation. It hasn't been confirmed that it was the Russians behind this, but um, one can assume it was. And the Russians are known for this kind of like grey misinformation area as a tactic. So, you know, it kind of it plays into the Russian playbook. And I don't know if we can expect more more of this, but the fact that Pretty Patel was also targeted shows that it is something that that they are looking to 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 do and see it as a useful means to eke out information fortunately they weren't able as we understand as things currently stand they weren't able to get any sensitive information out of these ministers but i i suppose it's just going to put everyone on guard now and as i said they'll no doubt be stepping up security when it comes to setting up conversations online when you you have um i didn't i i I was about to say when you have no way of verifying but i suppose you know this person was it was a different individual sat on camera and it it was questioning that led after 10 minutes the phone call to be terminated no one said hang on a second this guy doesn't that that's not him they look they look different i mean so i suppose that that's something as well that needs to be really looked at how was it possible for a conversation to take place for 10 minutes without someone realizing that they were talking to someone that wasn't who they uh, purported to be uh, i guess my next question would be in what medium did this call kind of play out because i guess as someone who works remotely you'd think that they would have kind of a different set of technology and government for making these kind of high security calls but is that a sense that you get it was it happened on teams a video call the defense secretary wouldn't have been the only person on that call other people would have been there and so other people would have been watching the footage live um the the imposter was sat behind was sat with a, a Ukrainian flag behind him apparently but they also I mean it it was sophisticated in the sense that and the initial email setting up the conversation was sent from someone within the Ukrainian government like an email address linked to an individual so in terms of you know verifying it I can see from a face level why it might have looked convincing but. It goes back to my point of no doubt as part of this inquiry into how this happened, they'll be looking at making sure their systems are more robust, particularly as these are the kind of dirty tricks that Russia is renowned for playing. So we should surely be on our guard anyway that they're capable of these sort of hoax. I mean, we mentioned it in our story today, but Prince Harry was hoaxed um, into thinking he was talking to Greta Thunberg um, once before and ended up saying some um, you know, controversial things that he probably shouldn't have said. So, And that was that was a Russian imposter. So we, sh- we should be aware that this is the kind of thing that they will be doing and therefore be on, be, you know, on, on guard that we are susceptible to these sort of attacks. And, and I suppose, I mean, I'm no security expert, but they'll be considering the kind of things that they discuss online going forward, like how sensitive, should these conversations actually only be happening face to face as opposed to online, which is a medium that can be very easily hacked, regardless to having an imposter there. I mean, who knows who's listening in and, and taking notes. So, I mean, I'm sure that high level conversations don't even take place uh, online in that way anyway. I'm sure they are more face to face. Thanks, Danny. I guess my final question, which I don't know if, Dom, you'd want to come on in on this as well, is 
how worried should we be? Is there a chance that more ministers were targeted and actually we're not hearing about it? Is this only coming out because Ben Wallace tweeted about it? It, could it be a wider issue that's already spiralling or actually do you think that this inquiry will happen, it will get wrapped up and the risks will kind of decrease? Well, Priti Patel came forward, well, was forthcoming to say, you know, this also happened to me. No other ministers did that. It is embarrassing, I suppose, to admit it. So perhaps this has happened at other levels and people have declined to share that information because they don't want to admit that they were tricked. Or it, it, it has only happened to two. Also, it's happened and people aren't aware that they've been tricked. So I, I suppose that's kind of speculation. Um, I'm interested to know what Don thinks on that. Yeah, so Western officials were saying this morning that, that this is a known, a known threat. Of course it is. And, and they said that since the... In the build-up to this war, they've they've been increasing their advice to um, prominent people who might be who might be attacked, uh, which is only only right right and proper. I think we can take a, some sort of solace from this uh, about how it happened. I mean, it's embarrassing, of course, it is for for Ben Wallace and and what have you. But um, I mean, he's a big boy; he can handle it. And he and he and he's got his defence in early. He said that. Um, and as they will, they'll splice and dice this and they'll put something hilarious out with him saying some stupid stuff. He's already kind of got that got that defence out there. And he said Look, they're not they're not going to show the bit when I was uh, when I was talking about uh, you know, the, the need for a free press and, and how uh, how Russia's uh, war is is stuttering and all, all the rest of it. So, of course, they're not going to put, put that bit out. And of course, yesterday we also had President Zelensky, that the deep fake um, of, of President Zelensky. So. Yeah, Wallace is in good company. You can say this is happening to all of us. We're being hacked. It's almost a badge of honour that they feel they, 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 should, they should attack somebody um, so prominent. And of course, it's worth bearing in mind what the, the kind of Russian ecosystem of, of cyber espionage looks like. I mean, you've got the, the, the Russian state at the centre with some amazing uh, high-end capabilities, the same as we have in Britain and the US and other, other countries around the world. But uh, I mean, they, they are very sophisticated and capable of a, a very, a very dangerous and uh, impactful hacks. And then there's these, uh, there's this sort of ecosystem of willing, compliant groups who are tacitly supported by Moscow. They might get a little bit of money. They might get a little bit of political cover. Um, they are tolerated as long as their attacks land outside the um, outside the borders of Russia. That that seems to be the deal. That you don't you don't try and ransom anyone or you know, make any money from inside Russia and have a go at the political establishment there. But anything overseas is fair game. So there's this there's this entire ecosystem. And the further you get to the edges of that, the more you get towards the sort of gifted amateurs and all the rest of it. So I think this, when you've actually got somebody on a fake call hoaxing Ben Wallace, I mean, that, that's probably quite far out to the edge. Because if this was hacked by, if it had been hacked by the Russian state, then they wouldn't tell him they were there. They'd just lay implants on his phone. They'd just be hoovering up the data, listening to it, looking at keyloggers, all the rest of it, doing whatever they can. There's no point telling your telling your victim that you're there uh, because all he's going to do, I'm sure he's probably already got a new phone now. So, and he, and he's very very aware that he's that he's vulnerable and he's started an inquiry. So, unlikely to have been the the deep centre of of the Russian state hacking. The um, we think that the sort of St. Petersburg-based Internet Research Agency, the big troll farm up, up there, is uh, is responsible for a lot of this. This sounds more like um, that kind of stuff, and some of the uh, some of the, the, the gifted amateurs in the on the edges of the ecosystem, rather than rather than a proper state attack from Russia. Thanks, Dom. Um, 
Before we move on to speaking to Ben about the sporting side of things, um, I wondered as we head into the weekend, we do these podcasts on a weekday basis, what you think we could have ahead this weekend and what to keep an eye out for, both in terms of kind of military and tactics and maybe even this kind of cyber war that's going on at the same time? Well, I think the military is going nowhere. I mean, certainly the Russian ground offensive is going is going nowhere. They're, they are still bogged down. Um, they are getting increasingly desperate. There's a, a flow of arms and equipment, um, equipment such as helmets, body armour, night vision, thermal cameras and what have you to, to Ukraine. All of that stuff is absolutely fundamental as well. We focus on the anti-tank missiles and anti-air missiles, but but all the all the other stuff, simply down to the rounds of ammunition. I mean, this is absolutely critical to keep keep the fight going. Um, so Russia is bogged down and, and is being slowly ground down by the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, they're responding, as we've seen, with aerial strikes, artillery strikes and what have you. So expect more of that. Keep an eye out on what comes out of China or what comes out of this talk this afternoon between Biden and Xi Jinping. That, that I think, and the the body language or the the, you know, the the language that's used and the messaging that comes out of that will be absolutely crucial. So that's I think that's the thing to watch out for this afternoon. Since the invasion of Ukraine began, we've seen Russia frozen out of sporting arenas across the world. I'm joined by Ben Rumsby, our sports investigations reporter here at The Telegraph. I wondered if to start, you could give us a sense of just how Russia has been frozen out of the sporting world in the last three weeks? Yeah, so it's been pretty unprecedented, to be honest, in the sporting world. Um, there have long been calls for Russia to be frozen out of sport for lots of different reasons, whether it be uh, doping or other reasons. But the Ukraine uh, crisis has really unified sports in a way that um, I've not seen before. And Effectively, Russia is uh, serving a sort of blanket ban from world sports in all but um, um, a very few. And cases. how have Russia responded to that? Have they have they launched a kind of legal action? Because I can't imagine that they they're saying, oh, "Okay, that's fine, we won't turn up." <laughs> yeah, so Russia have launched an appeal in the sports courts, uh, particularly against their ban from world football. So at the moment, um, they have been thrown out of the qualifying tournament for the World Cup, which takes place later this year. Um, that appeal is still pending. Um, they've lost in sort of an in- initial uh, you know, judgment that um, would put that um, sanction on hold. Um, and we are waiting to hear whether um, that will sort of be a longer term um, issue. Um, but they're not taking it lying down as you would expect and we would expect even more appeals to be lodged you know there's lots of sport out there and lots of athletes have been affected by this and also there could be more to come more athletes could find themselves excluded the ones that are currently able to compete at the moment um, as this um, crisis develops there may be more sanctions imposed that prevent them from carrying out their business as well. You mentioned sanctions there. Now, there is one big sanctions case that seems to be dominating the sporting discussion at the moment, and that is obviously the sanctions on Roman Abramovich, um, the Russian oligarch who has links to Vladimir Putin. Can you give us our listeners who might not be so familiar with how the last few weeks have played out a sense of, firstly, why Abramovich sanctions impact Chelsea and then the current situation that Chelsea as a football club are in? 
Yeah, so um, today is actually D-Day as far as Chelsea is concerned. It's the deadline for people wanting to buy the club um, to submit their bids. Um, as you say, Chelsea are effectively under sanction themselves because of um, Roman Abramovich owning 100% of the club and all his assets having been frozen. Um, they're being allowed to operate purely under a special licence that um, lets them play matches but doesn't allow them to sort of generate revenue that might end up going back to their owner. Um, This has been a long time coming um, for weeks and and longer in some cases. People have been calling for Roman Abramovich to be sanctioned over his links to Vladimir Putin. Um, It's unclear why the government decided not to do that until now. Um, obviously, this we're in a very different political climate than we were before. Um, and in fairness, they were the first to act of the sort of major Western powers. Um, and it would appear Abramovich foresaw this. He put the club up for sale before the sanctions were imposed um, and um, even said that he would take not a penny of revenue out of it and would donate any any money generated to the uh, victims of this conflict. The government aren't going to let him do that. Um, They are going to take the money, or make sure, I should say, that the money um, goes to, um, you know, maybe um, disaster relief funds um, of their choosing and not of his choosing. But it really is an extraordinary and unprecedented situation um, in in English football. And you say that Abramovich uh, kind of reacted to the sanctions and has agreed, put Chelsea up for sale relatively quickly, but is there a sense that he also, because he saw this coming and had, there was that delay, that he had time to kind of put his assets elsewhere and make a plan that was beneficial for him as well? Yeah, certainly um, this has bought him some time. Um, He was photographed for the first time since he was sanctioned earlier this week, travelling um, seemingly from Moscow to Turkey via um, Israel. Um, and also his uh, super yacht, um, rep- reputedly one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive super yacht in the world, was also being tracked heading to Turkey. And um, Turkey is outside of the EU so um, the yacht, if it's there, cannot be seized currently. And I'm sure that a lot of um, assets that he is able to relocate out of territories in which he is sanctioned are currently um, or have, have been so, if, if not already. And this situation has been one that's certainly difficult for Chelsea fans as they face up to the kind of awful links that the that Abramovich has with the the... Russian president. Can you give a sense of what the current situation is for Chelsea fans? Can they still go to matches if they have season tickets? Can they still use them? Are they still valid? Yeah, so the asset freeze applied from last Thursday. seems like an age ago, but it is really only just over a week ago that this this happened. Um, So anybody in possession of a ticket, um, whether that be a match ticket or a season ticket before then, those are still valid. Um, so for the rest of this season, um, Chelsea can at least play their home matches 
um, in a stadium that will be probably around two-thirds full. Um, they are desperately trying to get um, the government to agree to allow more supporters to attend. Um, today was actually the draw for the quarterfinals of the Champions League and, and um, listeners may know that Chelsea are the current holders. They won the competition last season. And because season tickets do not apply to Champions League matches, they are facing the prospect of playing the home leg of that tie behind closed doors. Um, but as we reported um, yesterday in today's paper as well, um, the government is willing to um, entertain having fans there. What they aren't willing to entertain is that Chelsea will get the money from any tickets themselves. So um, a way will have to be found um, where fans can buy tickets, but the money is either given to charity or to the football authorities to distribute elsewhere or some other mechanism um, that avoids Chelsea getting that revenue because um, the government's been very clear that um, while Abramovich's assets are frozen, he cannot receive a penny. And we spoke there about the Champions League. Now, the other huge um, tournament that's coming up later this year is obviously the World Cup. How, away from Chelsea, how could the kind of geopolitics impact that that um, tournament going ahead? Mm, well, as I said earlier, the, the main impact at the moment is Russia's expulsion. Um, they have um, been thrown out of the playoffs, um, which were taking place next week or the week after, I think. Um, so they will need to be replaced um, in the uh, in the competition. Also, the um, the women's European Championships are being held in England uh, this summer, um, and Russia had already qualified for that tournament, and they've also been thrown out of that. Um, interestingly, one of the teams that could replace them is Ukraine, and that would what a story that would be if um, they ended up being selected. I think they're one of three teams who they're going to, there's going to be a draw to decide which which of the three teams replaces Russia. And what a story it would be if Ukraine ended up being the team selected to replace them. And then, as you say, at the end of the year, you've got a World Cup in Qatar. Um, long been massive controversy about the location for that tournament. Um, in fact, the previous tournament was was in Russia itself. So you've you've really got two World Cups now in which there's been huge controversy. If this uh, crisis, you know, continues until the end of the year, and let's pray that it doesn't, but if it does, then I'm sure the World Cup will be used politically. You've you've got potentially, um, you know, in a region where there has been not necessarily support for Russia, but certainly there have been nations in the Gulf who haven't exactly um, condemned what's going on there. Um, it'll be very interesting to see whether there is a sort of, um, you know, political heat, uh, whether any teams will um, use the tournament to, to highlight what's going on in Ukraine. Football is becoming increasingly um, linked with political causes, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter or even um, the Qatar World Cup itself and human rights. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if... Um, there were some um, pro-Ukraine or anti-Russian views expressed during the tournament. Indeed, and with the kind of oil supply crisis, I mean, Qatar obviously shares borders with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So you can imagine that these 
nations that are so entrenched in the crisis themselves are gonna are, are gonna kind of impact upon such a kind of global event especially later this year i wanted to turn quickly to the athletes on the other side who might not have been banned but have come out in support of um vladimir putin have there been what are the high profile cases that we've seen so far and how has the kind of national response played out i guess international response even yeah in terms of um athletes you know overtly supporting what's what's happened um high profile athletes anyway um really the biggest one was at a gymnastics event um last week or the week before where one of the medalists from uh, russia and he he wasn't allowed to represent russia officially he was um you know a sort of neutral athlete as a lot of these people um now are he he wore a z um on his um on his top um and that obviously caused a, a major outcry and um he's now um facing major action from the sport as a result of that the the other you know really high profile um examples are the tennis players who interestingly aren't re- aren't really part of the ban that's been imposed these these guys are kind of seen as freelancers who don't um sort of represent their country in any formal manner at the likes of Wimbledon and other major tennis tournaments um but certainly scrutiny is very much now turning on them um the one who's really spoken out um and gone probably as far as anybody in terms of um condemning what's happening is a female tennis player called Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova i mean she's even said that um you know she's she's not scared to say what she thinks um you've got um a male tennis player called um Andrei Rublev who um wrote on um the camera of the television camera after one of his matches no war please and then finally there's the um i don't know if he's still world number 1 he may have lost that status actually um, now but he certainly was world number 1 tennis player Daniel Medvedev i mean he has called for peace um but um he hasn't overtly condemned putin um or um russia's invasion as you might as you or i might do um and we heard from the government just this week that um they are potentially drawing up plans for russian tennis players and other you know freelance um performers who may have to have to come out publicly and 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 denounce what's happening in order to play at the likes of Wimbledon. And if they do come out and denounce, surely whilst lots of athletes these athletes have been maybe been able to leave Russia along with lots of the kind of um young people that have left in the last few weeks, there are certainly athletes in Russia now who won't be able to leave and might feel forced into not condemning the war what kind of risks are these athletes facing within the kind of russian setup well i think we all know what vladimir putin is capable of um in terms of how he deals with his enemies um i think anybody would understandably be afraid of speaking up overtly um in in this manner particularly people of high profile roles um 
I personally don't actually think they will be required to do that. I think legally and morally that, that that's fraught with difficulties. But I do think anybody who um, comes out actively supporting what's happened, as I say, this gymnast did, uh, they they certainly w- would not be welcome at these um, at these events. Um, I think that, I think that I think that's probably where we will end up with this. Yeah, and it, it seems like it, it's a kind of thing that, as long as this conflict goes on, will continue to go on as well as, as, as we have international sport. I guess that leads into probably my final question for you, Ben, which would be, how do you see this impacting the future of not just football, but kind of sport in general? We've had Olympics during World War II, we've had these kind of issues before, but do you see it changing Russia's status on the sporting stage for good yeah i mean like pretty much every institution in um the western world the last sort of what decade or so um sport has spent cozying up to russia you know awarding its biggest events to russia olympics world cups um and now um it you couldn't you couldn't imagine holding an event in russia you know, any time soon. I mean, when when do you welcome back into the fold a country, or certainly a country with a leader who has has carried out an invasion of a of another sovereign country? I think I just can't I can't see how that will happen while Vladimir Putin remains Russian president. Um, I think if if were were he to be toppled, were he to go then um, certainly any new leader, if they were seen to be, you know, um, not like him, um, you you could see very quickly Russia being welcomed back because it's a huge country, huge money involved um, and sports, you know, it's it's addicted to this kind of cash. But um, no, while um, while Putin remains president, wouldn't surprise me at all if... um, you know, Russia remains something of a prior state in sport, um, you know, indefinitely. I've just got, I know I said that was my final question, but you've just sparked one more question from me, which would be, you said, you know, Russia has a lot of, a huge amount of money and it, it, it funds a lot of, of sport. Do you think that that has put some sports kind of at a, at a risk of underfunding and in the same way that we've seen fin- financial sanctions have issues, have kind of real impacts on Russian businesses. Do you think it will have the same kind of impacts on Russian sports, for example, and the funding we might see for an Olympic team or a football team? Yeah, I've got no doubt. And, and the same actually potentially will apply to um, sports outside of Russia. I mean, we are all suffering the effects of this war in terms of cost of living, um, fuel prices, etc, etc. The same is bound to be reflected in the economy of sport as well, both inside and outside of Russia. Um, You would like to think that the impacts within Russia would be much, much greater as, as you would with the economic sanctions that have been imposed elsewhere, because um, this may well turn into a a, a situation of who who can put up with you know the the, the hardship um, for the longest. Um, so um, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that um, Russian 
sport funding for Russian sport will will have an impact will be an impact on that and I guess we should probably put a final thought towards the Ukrainian athletes now there have been Ukrainian athletes competing over the last two weeks I know we've seen kind of tennis players and stuff is is there a sense that Ukrainian athletes will continue to compete I know that many even the Klitschko brothers for example are on the battlefield how do you think it will change sport in Ukraine yeah I mean that's really one of the main justifications for what's happened to Russia in the sporting um, landscape some people might say oh why do you punish people who have nothing to do with the war well this the same is happening to Ukraine sports people as a result of this invasion their their ability to to perform and um, particularly within the country has been destroyed by this um so if they're um suffering why shouldn't you know the um athletes from the antagonistic country be suffering as well um uh, some sports people have been evacuated from the country others you know want to sort of fight for their homeland you mentioned the klitschkos um you know very probably the most famous individuals um in ukraine let alone sports people um uh, it's, it's extremely difficult you, you know the ukraine football team um was meant to be playing scotland um in a in the world cup playoffs and that match has had to be postponed because they're unable to play for their clubs to you know prepare um for this game they may well be have faced difficulty getting out of ukraine for this for this game so it's um you know it's it's horrendous on all fronts really Stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground. Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine the latest on your podcast app and if there's something we could do to make it even more useful do let us know you can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and on twitter alice hearing <laughs>